This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into a, an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Eric Hollerbacher, welcome to the show. It is so cool to see you, my friend. I first met you on Union of the Unwanted. I was with Charlie Robinson and just laughing my ass off every time you talked. It was fascinating, entertaining. You make some fascinating, intelligent points. You have some amazing insights. You do these incredible things, and I can't wait to spend this time with you and uh, share you with the audience here, my friend. So uh, ahead of time group, I'm going to be laughing my ass off because this dude is one of the funniest people I've ever sat down with. We just had like a meeting last year on something and I couldn't make it through without laughing. Also, he I was a guest on his show, Highway Diaries, episode 394, which will be located down below, guys, along with all the other ways to find him. Eric, how are you, brother? I'm good. Thanks for having me on your show. Appreciate it. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. So you are a stand-up, a screenwriter, and a podcaster. Now, I've heard of screen printer, but screenwriter, is that how they did it before the technology was invented? Um, it's writing movies and TV shows. Oh, I see. Screenplay instead of stage play. I see. Uh, that's why I got my master in from the university of New Orleans. And I got my undergrad in just creative writing. And that was mostly like short story, nonfiction writing, but the whole time, I mean, both of my college experience, I feel like I was in there to pursue other interests. Like when I was in undergrad, I was doing improv the whole time at a place called Upright Citizens Brigade. And like a week before I graduated, I was uh, on the house team. I was on a house team called The Spin, which was a political show that was to do with the running up to the 2008 election when Barack Obama took it. But before that, there was a bunch of candidates and then they would have all these debates um, back before it was all AI robot candidates they actually had debates with the you know human sock puppets and so they would you know one of them would clearly win and then the other and then all of their sycophants would go oh john mccain he looks so energized even if he was half dead you know that so it was called the spin because we would show news clips and then do improv making fun of the circus the political circus so um but before that i did stand up like when I was 16 for the first time. And I did that probably like a dozen or 20 times before I, but then when I saw the upright citizens brigade and they said they teach classes and it was kind of like Scientology where it's like level one, level two, level three. And that was a very, um, you know, great level structure to climb. So you feel like you're going up in the world, climbing a ladder. I, I get very, depressed i get very nuts when i feel like i'm in a lat there's no ladder there's no structure you know and comedy is the worst possible industry to be in when you want fairness a meritocracy and structure so um yeah anyway <laughs> that answers some of your question no it definitely does and you're you have a fascinating background here so you moved to la in 2009 uh you worked on shark tank and some other um 
reality TV shows. I mean, you're also producing some stuff of your own. I mean, the the you living in New Orleans, doing your screenwriting, not screen printing. Thank you. I have it noted here. I appreciate it. And yeah. you've you just had uh, so far a fascinating um, experience here. So what do you think of your time here so far? Like uh, you could say, like if you could rate life from a one to five, let's say like a stars rating uh, on your experience of it up to this point, how's it been so far, dude? How has my ride been? I'll yeah. give it a three. I mean, I feel like uh, just constantly frustrated that, you know, I'm not where I think I should be in the world, but I, I don't think that ever changes. You know, I heard this John Cleese, like I in undergrad, I went down a very dark spiral from John Cleese saying a, a 30 second video someone filmed in a taxi cab. And he's like, well, I moved to LA. Everyone here treats me like absolute shit. They don't know who I am. And I was like, I was like suicidal. I was like, what's the point? He's like the most famous comedian ever in England at the time, you know, and uh, he's miserable living in LA with a bunch of losers. And I go, you know what I mean? What what chance is it for me if that guy's not happy? He's got millions of dollars, you know? 40, so 40 towers for Christ's sake, right? Yeah, faulty towers, yeah. you know, the Monty Python, which they played on BBC from the 70s to yesterday. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, so uh, but I think that's it's good. I think if I feel complacent, then, you know, it's kind of like I need self-hatred. It's like water on the gills for a comedian, you know, that's the comedian's way, right? This self deferred deprecation right i mean you just beat up on yourself but what it is is a real it's it's also a lot of masking and self-actualization as well you guys are so self-aware but also you see this place in such a fascinating way comedy has always been something that i have found more to be a philosophy to be honest with you because the greats you know hicks um i listened to um Dave Chappelle's Kill Him Softly, I don't know how many times on CD, I just kept burning it and burning it and all the Bill Hicks shit, Carlin, everything. And I looked at it as really part of, a strong part of my awakening and my ability to see things as they were around here rather than this mask that they were pretending to be. And comedy does that, man. What did you say about the jester being the only one that gets to slap the king? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something that Charlie Robinson brought up on my podcast, but it, it, you know, it's like the, the court jester in medieval times is the only one who can say honest things to the king all the other peasants are trying to curry favor they want contracts to make shoes or contacts to make contracts to make candles then while he's being taxed but you know everyone wants either a good position in the village a good real estate at the time or they want lower taxes they want to curry favor and the court jester's like this fat loser and then you know he could be <laughs> beheaded and they have been beheaded, but be very careful if you're the king who beheads your jester because all of the peasants are putting every fucking thing they've ever wanted to say to his fat, dumb, entitled face into that clown. He's dressed like a clown for a reason. These are just jokes. He has bells on his head. He's not to be taken seriously, but he's the only one get, that could be taken seriously on another point because he's the only one who could be honest to the bloated fat King Henry VIII or whoever he's talking about after he King Henry VIII like beheaded eight of his wives. And now that's a tough room. You know what I'm saying? Now you're the court jester walking up to that guy <laughs> sharpening his ax or his fucking, you know, you think he'd come up with more creative ways to do it after eight. He gets bored of the same routine. You know, do you think he's <laughs> like, let's see if we can yank it real hard, you know? Uh, what do you mean? The, the means headings. of which he, uh, yeah, yeah. The or, way in which, yeah. Yeah, I think catapult, you know, all sorts of <laughs> see if we can launch our head like a watermelon over this bridge here. Yeah, maybe some razzmatazz, you know, if you're, you know, the military people are coming up with new weapons, you know, try them out on the body. <laughs> Why not? Right. Just get a new wife. Who cares? Yeah, it's um, it's a crazy thing, man. But I love the uh, even that that's a deep ass thing to think about the court jester and how deep that goes, because it's so true. And the way that you said all the peasants put all their energy because they're the one he's the one speaking all the things that they can't say. It's fascinating. Dude. It's just an interesting perspective. And the peasants around him and the sycophants around him, they don't want to laugh because if they laugh, then the then the fucking uh, king might look at them and go, you laughed at that. So you think I'm like that. But if the king would laugh, it would give permission. So the king had to be self-aware. 
And he was put in a position where it was almost impossible. So this push and pull, this energetic connection between the most entitled, retarded person possible and the um, most irreverent person possible, that that's the politics of the kingdom. We're struck in that order. And if he would keep beheading the jesters, I, I, you know, shit falls down. You know, if a monkey shits on the top of a reef, that thing rolls down and everyone's going to be miserable and the king's not not going to be powerful anymore. But if the king can laugh at himself, then it gives him credibility. So it, it like his humility becomes a tool in the kingdom. It's very important. What a fascinating observation. Holy shit, I'm just blown away by it. So give me a minute to integrate that. But while we're doing that, I spoke of some of my comedic uh, influences. So some of who are some of yours, man? Who did you like? Yeah, uh, David tell. So I'm very fortunate. You know, I grew up like upper middle class. And so now I live very poor and I don't give a fuck because I saw the pretentiousness of it. And so now I'm more on a spiritual journey, but I grew up quite, quite hoity toity. My dad worked on Wall Street when I was a kid. And so he would take me to, I'm from Jersey, so we would go to New York City and go to the Comedy Cellar. So I watched Jim Norton, Patrice O'Neill, Greg Giraldo, um, you know, Mitch Hedberg, uh, like all these people before they died. And uh, David Tell, Jim Norton, all these people. I remember one time Bobby Kelly was on stage and he was like really fat at the time. And he was like, no, you could tell I'm good looking if you just go... And he would like squint his face. And then Patrice O'Neill was in the back. Stop lying to these people. You ugly as shit. Stop. Oh, you put 25% of your face up. Stop lying to these people. And it was chaos and it was crazy. And then, um, yeah, so I just like that anything goes. There's like a danger in the air. There was one time where Jim Norton was on stage and there was this whole bachelorette party and he was at Caroline's headlining and he warned her. He goes, okay, stop. Stop heckling. Okay. And then she <laughs> and then she kept going. And he's like, this is your second warning. And the audience was starting to go, uh-oh. And they knew that she was like, and then she went again. Ah, oh, well, that joke sucked. And he goes, you fat bitch, you only got married for the cake. <laughs> Everyone started laughing so hard. And she looked like she was going to hang herself from going, ah, 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 I'm so better than you. Ah, they're super drunk. And then afterward, her face was facing the just the bench seat she was on. She was facing the crowd. Her face turned and the crowd went nuts. Oh. The whole crowd wanted her to shut up the whole time. And Norton did it like that. And it was like, I had tears in my eyes from the beauty of it, from the public slaughter. Yeah, fuck that lady. You know what I mean? I It was beautiful to me that that happened yeah it's this instant reality check this just sort of news flash buddy you know just and instant. It, he was so fair he 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 called that's your first one okay yep that's your set really cool and then the second cake percussed through the microphone <laughs> the room changed like that everyone was annoyed with this person it was amazing i still love jim norton i, I met him in a green room recently i was too scared to talk to him it's like uh, you know, like a religious figure to me. Oh, he's incredible. And, you, you know, you mentioned Patrice O'Neill, Greg Giraldo. Greg yeah. Giraldo, I remember seeing on, of course, the comedy Roasts, uh, which is where I saw him. But what was his uh, stand-up like beyond the roast? Oh, yeah. He was very, um, I don't remember at the time. You got to keep in mind, this is like 2002 okay, um, or so. But I just remember him being hilarious and him, uh, he was very political. And then he would bring politics to his personal life. Like, I, I just, I, I remember that analogy he would make. Like, uh, yeah. And then when I watched that, then my wife said this. It was kind of like that kind of stuff. But I, I don't remember any any specifics. With Burns on the Roast were hilarious. Oh, man. Dude, man. And he, he, yeah, he was very sweaty and weird and, but hilarious. And I just feel like Greg Geraldo, if we kept him around, if he, if he didn't have a drug problem, you know, Mitch Hedberg, if he didn't have a drug problem, you know, I'm like so anti-drug these days, like, because uh, I've seen people destroy them, their lives, destroy their talent. My friend John Rowe in New Orleans, I, I, I just went to grad school in New Orleans to do stand-up with black people every night. And one of my best friends was John Rowe, and he was so good that Vice Magazine came down to watch him uh, crush. And he like he was so effortless. He just crushed in front of Vice Magazine. They put up this whole thing. It's still on. It's called Comedy Flophouse. It's still on YouTube. And... Um, 
and uh probably a year later he was dead and i drove him to la and i have a lot of guilt about that because i knew he wasn't ready but he thought he could parlay that into a career i'm like you don't have like a thousand dollars in your bank account i don't think moving to la is a good idea and eight days after he moved to la he died of either a drug overdose or a withdrawal jesus man so sad and he he had this thing where he was in a car accident with his brother his brother died he had this survivor well, <laughs> he had this survivor's guilt which he he was like life life is fleeting it doesn't matter okay life isn't real rent isn't real feeding myself isn't real being as funny as possible is real and he would walk on stage and crush so effortlessly i would have my gay little notes my little notebook and i would like half bomb and he would be like hammer drunk walk out of his car crush so hard and three girls would care follow him out and he's like whatever but you know what i mean but it's just like watching that i was like oh my god but then after he died it's like what a waste get it together man this is about longevity it's about balance you know that's why like you know i did the thing where i did like six days a week every week for years and years and years and now i have to pick my shots more to self-preserve because i know i can get too crazy and like go to open mics six days a week and then you know get you know drill up bar tabs and and i'm wasting wasting away instead of like now i just like pick my shots boom thank god i uh you know class gets open for triply every now and then um and uh also i i feel like the scene in austin is very like like there's like a thousand comics and like a million people so i go to houston a lot because there's a club called the secret group that i get to play and i can play all weekend every day there and so like i'll like book like a thursday friday saturday sunday just to get like my my fill in and i have like 30 minutes that it's really good so i i know i can keep my act sharp while i preserve myself because i you know i'm nuts and i can go crazy and destroy myself you know I'm on the other side of this extreme burnout, but I do remember back in my 20s when I was gigging every single night with that guitar back there. Um, I was playing every single night, you know, committed gigs, two, three gigs and, um, you know, on night sometimes and multiple a week. And it was just too much, man, you know. Um, and then recently on the other side of this uh, most recent burnout, uh, still learning, uh, you know, 20 something years later, it's just really about regulating your your engine, man. And so the thing that I came to is just the analogy of like and keeping an eye on my engine, right? Keeping an eye on the way I was mm. performing my rest to energy ratio, right? And so what I then came to is the picture of an ion engine and an ion engine was sci-fi, but now it's a very real thing, allegedly, uh, that pulses uh, in a way that it preserves its it, it rests while it spins, and then it does so in a way that it expends to go way faster, way further, and at way more efficient rates, right? And so keeping an eye on your engine, meaning deliberately making time to rest, deliberately, as you're doing now, thinning out your, your schedule to make sure that you prioritize you and your personal needs over this sort of content is king uh, thing that we're tricked into sometimes, and we even motivate ourselves and convince ourselves of, hey, content's king, I gotta get out there if I'm not on the streets, if I'm not putting episodes out, you know, stuff like anything like that then it's gonna be damaging to my career, but it's honestly the most damaging thing. It'll get you to a level to where you realize it was not gonna be sustainable moving forward. And that's a beautiful, mature place that you reach in your career, dude. Yeah, it's like, what's the point if I'm not happy? Like, what's right. the point? I've seen that happen before to other comics. I've seen it happen. They got higher heights than me and they were not happy. And I go, oh, you know, there, so there's, there's other elements other than just your success. It's so funny, I'll put out a podcast of Highway Diary on and, and then, the next morning on Chartable, it'll go as I've been as high as number eight on stand up in America on Chartable. Now, when I put out podcasts, it goes to like 60 or 76 out of, you know, in the top hundred every time I put out one. And even if it's like every three weeks. So I there's some kind of, I went to I'm like number seven in Cyprus. I've never been to Cyprus. I'm like, I don't know. Saudi Arabia likes me, too. I don't know. They, I, I went to like number four in Norway, never been there. I have no idea why. Um, you so, have a Middle Eastern-ish looking face though. 
<laughs> Maybe it's the beard. Yeah. Maybe it's beard. I did have a, a roommate called Mohammed from Dubai. And he goes, Eric, if you went to my country with that beard, the girls would go crazy. So maybe that's what it is. <laughs> it um, is quite the womb room, my friend. <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah, I don't know. I forgot what we were talking about. What are we talking about? Let, let me uh, hold on. I have a, I have a question for you. I just okay. um, got a little emotional. I'll talk about John Rowe and, and his death. It's, it really did affect me deeply. When I heard you on Union of the Unwanted, you got quite emotional, but it was like, I just feel like uh, you were going through a lot of grief. It sounded like you had a lot of like close people in your life pass away. And then you introduced this device that you have, a very high-tech device that when you're having a negative emotion, oh my God, I feel so negative right now. I'm hopeless. There's no way out of this. Is there any way? Do you have any devices you think that can help me? Oh, what's that? This pooter tutor is one of the coolest things. It's one of the best investment investments I've ever made. And I'm going to go ahead and link a four pack that's really cheap on Amazon below. Yep. That's I, funny. Yeah, but talk about your grief because it sounded like like you were talking and it wasn't it didn't seem like it was anything. And then uh, there was like a lot of emotion behind your voice. Yes. So um, I'm glad you brought it up. Honestly, we don't you know, we don't really talk about the shit I'm doing on the show, but uh, because you brought it up, I will honor that. And I really appreciate it. So, yes, the other night on uh, Union of the Unwanted, it was sort of the recap. And you know how it goes. I just popped in and uh, the night alive, I needed to hop off and host after that. But for the time I was in there, I really got to talk about sort of my year and what I reflected on. And it was a fucked up year, man, to be honest with you. And it's not done yet. I get it. Uh, but it was it was challenging and in the most challenging of ways I've ever been challenged It is the challengingest of challenges. So uh, on the other side of it, though, um, I'm much more empowered and much more balanced. I will say this and I feel way better uh, than I thought that I did before. So honestly, it's it's the most empowering thing I've ever experienced in my life. But yes, I was actually going to bring him up during this episode and I am going to be linking his episode below. Uh, Brian Moreno, man, um, did you get a chance to talk to that guy or did you know him? No. So Brian Moreno uh, was a comedian who came on the show. Uh, we connected because he, God, this was like such a, one of those serendipitous things, right? So like my first year in the show, I met, he messaged me and like uh, from under an account that was like his movie that he was putting out. And it was this uh, dreamland, um, this area 51 story. And he did a whole mockumentary ish. It's like two movies in one um, of a narrative, but also covering sort of the storming of area 51 in a really cool way. Right. So he uh, and I started talking. It took months and months and months before then the film was ready. We reached out. So we already had this little bit of rapport and I'd seen a couple of his videos. I really didn't dive too deep into him. And then he got on the show, man, and we had one of the coolest conversations, episode 123, I remember it top of my head, uh, down in the uh, show notes. And we just had one of the coolest conversations. And then, you know, he was on a union. We popped in and hung out for for a little bit. And I know he was on, um, he was on uh, Tinfoil and he's just, a cool fucking dude, man, with a great heart, and he he was having a blast. And then, you know, all of a sudden, I get a message from Jeff Drum, uh, the Egypt dude from from all people, saying, "Hey, uh, Brian Moreno's gone." You know, and this was last April, and I was just like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" I was driving to Austin, by the way, to see my brother, and um, I get this message, and so I, you know, message Sam, just finding out what was going on or whatever, and we just sort of talked about it, and it sucked, man. It's it's one of these things that's just like, fuck this. I also had, um, I've had several losses on the show, man. I've interviewed at least five people on the show who are no longer with us. Uh, some legends, Jordan Maxwell passed away exactly one month of the day after I had him on. Um, you had uh, Peter Gorman, again, these fucking legends. Uh, Robbie Graham, uh, publisher, uh, decided to check out. Um, and that really hit me because we messaged like a week before and I'd, we were setting up just a time to chat. We would just hop on every now and then, not as much as any of us would like, but we'd hop on a chat and talk and um, he had wanted to delay it and I was like yeah no problem man no big deal and then you know I think a week later he was gone so it, it just like that was like uh and then um, I met a guy named uh, Grady Keane on the show and he reached out just one of these amazing dudes sends cool shit we just you know could connect on a bunch of levels he then made me candles and this is in my shout outs there's actually a little video of it he made these candles Brandon's batch and uh, they're super amazing and sweet and this dude puts like all this care and shit in it look it's got tiger's eye and shit in it <laughs> Anyway, amazing guy. And then he joined Dave Zed and I for a part one of 9-11, um, numerology behind 9-11. And we were going to do a part two. 
But um, he was going to rehab, uh, checking himself into rehab after being off of antidepressants, prescription antidepressants, that he was kicking himself. And he was checking into rehab and just celebrate as they do. He went outside, man, 28 years old, and uh, found um, just some dude that ended up with some little white powder that had some fentanyl in it, man. And that kid is no longer with us. I had three of those candles, and I'll never burn that one. You know what I mean? Uh, then uh, several people I know got cancer this year. Along with all of this heaviness, I just saw a bunch of dudes around me, you know, wasting away and talking about suicide and really falling out. And I felt that I wasn't, I was definitely not connected to that. I had no empathy for it. I, I had sort of a, man, I'd like to talk to you and better understand that, but I do not know where you're coming from. And now I absolutely fucking know where they're coming from. Like, I get it. Um, Dear friend of mine, Mark Malone, he runs America 21, um, just lost his wife, aged uh, 38, from this horrible fucking cancer. Now he's raising three babies on his own. And it's just a fucking, it's a weird place. And now I don't know if it's because I know more people and I'm talking to more people that it, like more people are fucking dying or something like that. Um, there's also other things like Matthew Smith of uh, uh, Modern Old World um, has, you know, this is... Uh, looking forward to beating the cancer that they said that he has. And so, yeah, man, this been, it's been a heavy fucking month and the, or year, really. And then uh, from June on, it was just pound, 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 pound. And so a lot of it was just sort of this storm. And I didn't really Lieutenant Dan it as much as I thought I did. You know what I mean? I was kicking and screaming through this shit. I wasn't laughing at it and flipping it off. I am now, and I get it. Um, but it before, man, it, it was really, really tough. And on the other side of this thing, which I, I'll never claim to be over, I'm just on the other side of what I feel was the heaviest bit of it. You know, it's like adjusting to a new gravity, right? It, it's I've adjusted to the new weight of what's going on. And now I'm walking better is what I mean. So it's been heavy, dude. Uh, and that's that's to being real with you. And so the real focus this year was like on, um, you know, mental health, men's mental health, especially because talking to, talking about things like Robbie, dude. If I could have just maybe, if we could have hung out with him, if I could have, I wanted to book him on the show again. And I was, he sent me, um, he was a publisher and he sent me two copies of his books and I had just found us, founded a publishing house and I was so excited to talk to him about it, to ask him about it. I wanted to write forward for books, to collabs on stuff, you know, and that's what that meeting was going to be about. And maybe, you know, maybe he wouldn't have decided to check out. Maybe he would have been like, ah, oh, there's something to look forward to, but I'm not putting that on me. You know what I mean? It's not like I was responsible for that, but it's something that you, you just kind of think about, you know? And then you got guys like uh, Adam Butler with his uh, DMT field guide. He came on and we had a great conversation about men's mental health, dude. And I, I think it's something that's uh, just important to talk about. Any mental health, by the way. I'm not delegating this to simply penises. I just adorn one. So that's the perspective I'm coming at it from. So that's how I feel about it, Eric. I appreciate the rant, man. Hey, no problem. No, I feel that. And like, I, I realized I was uh, going through something and uh, and I was like, let me just, you know, it's it's like if you see a bunch of salmon like swimming up the stream, I, I like I'm like, no, like <clears throat> when uh, Rogan's Club first opened, like there was like a line out the door, like, if you know, 900 comics trying to sign up for the open mic. I'm like, no, I have I have specials on I have three 30 minute specials out there. I, I'm not I'm I am above this. I'm not doing that. It will never happen. So. I kind of like you kind of like know your value and then like, well, what else is what other chakra? I feel like my heart chakra was like depleted just being a fucking look at me fucking piece of garbage for 21 years. You know, I started when I was 16. I put out my specials and and then, you know, I, I got really involved in my ex-girlfriend's kid's life. I said now I see him every Wednesday and every Sunday, I canceled on you last week because he had a event at school that he volunteered for. Sunday, this past Sunday, I took him. He told me he never had a big soft pretzel. So I took him to the Schultz Beer Garden and I got him a proper German big pretzel and sausage with, with cheese and mustard. It blew his mind. He's like, oh my God. He, cause I'm like, I'm like, you'd never had a big pretzel. He's like a pretzel rod. I'm like, what? So no, <laughs> and like his dad's in jail and his dad's a piece of garbage and uh, he beat up a well maybe, uh, he beat up a cop on drugs I'll just say that so he's was not getting on drugs or was no. he on drugs when he beat he up? was on drugs and he decided to fist fight an officer I and see. so they don't they, the law doesn't Johnny the law didn't really play kindly to that well that's why I had to take pause I mean if the cop was on drugs he was doing citizens arrest type thing okay. <laughs> 
Who knows? Who, Who knows? knows? It was in a sketchy area. Maybe they were both on drugs, sucking each other's dick, and it went wrong. I don't know. Like you just didn't have a good enough lawyer. Either way. <laughs> you know, sometimes tricks go bad. I've been on both sides of that scenario. <laughs> but uh yeah, you got pinched up. You got a little you got a little held up. And so uh but you know, he hadn't seen him for two years anyway. And now we this is like now the school knows about me. That's my godson. And so like I hang out with him every every Sunday and most Wednesdays. Not tonight because he's got to stay after school and do some homework. But, uh, you know, I think Sunday I'm going to take him to the arcade and uh, eat some Jamaican food. And it's great. But it's like just giving him some dad vibes makes me feel so good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's got to be great because then you get to fulfill that in you as well, because you show that you have nurturing to give and you have empathy and you have wisdom to pass on, man. You have stories, you have, you have wisdom, dude. And he's craving that. And you're filling this masculine void in his life that, that is needed, dude. So that's amazing. Yeah. But it's funny because I'm like, Oh, let me give him some girl advice. I pick him up from like play practice. Like nine girls are like, bye. I'm like, I don't think he needs any (laughs) help with this next. (laughs) We'll talk about taxes. (laughs) Yeah. But I was trying to talk to him about girls. I was talking to him about my successes and failures. And before I made the mistake of telling him that I think it's really funny when he makes fun of me. And so I was telling him about, you know, this girl and that girl and this and that. And I was telling him about my history. And then he goes, okay, but um, hold on. Quick question. When did you go bald? And I was like, what? He's like, when did you go bald? I was like 27. He's like, how old are you now? I'm like 38. And he goes, okay, well, you're 11 in bald years. So manage (laughs) your expectations. And I was like driving home from taking him out to like a nice Italian restaurant. I was like, you little fucking shit. You know, I got so mad. I got like red in the face. And then I was like, I was like, all right. I like when you make fun of me a little bit. Like I was the king with my goblet going, kill this jester, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Come on. That's brilliant. You loved it too. It's a brilliant Oh, I did love it. But I was like, I was kind of laughing. I was like, I've never heard that one before. Yeah, I love you. Yeah, I've been doing comedies for so long. I've never heard your 11 and bald years. No, because it opens the door to all sorts of new comedy, right? Because you could be anything in anything years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's now that's a formula. I'm going to steal from him. I'll just steal that joke. Implement. Yeah, but make it about him. So he's credited in some way, but have it also be a shot. Mm. So it lives for infamy. Yeah, I got to get back at that kid. Also, it's funny because, um, we play GTA all the time and he's like, you know, beating up a hooker with a metal bat or whatever. He didn't give a fuck. And then like, I took him to get a haircut. Um, and it was like a transvestite who was like rough looking. And he was like, I want to leave. I'm like, he'll have the number 24. <laughs> and like, he, so like Get that shampoo, th- dude. That's why AI doesn't translate. Cause you can machine learn anything, but if you don't implement it in the real world, it's, it's information you don't have access to yeah, applied knowledge. Right. Right. So like all the Bill Gates thing, all the computer learning, it will never work. It doesn't work. You can't teach humans. They need like Play-Doh and we, they need like recess and they need to like interact with each other. Just one real quick thing. I know this is true because during the height of the fake pandemic lockdowns, they this teacher um, I met and she was saying, oh, my God, I had the worst day. I go, what happened? She goes, well, we gave all the kids a laptop. And I'm trying to teach math class. And it's like a Zoom meeting with all the kids' faces on the, you know. The boys would log in and their screens were all captured. They logged in for attendance and then they just started watching hardcore porn. (laughs) So I'm trying to teach math class with all their screens that should have graphs and numbers on them. It's like 18 buttholes getting (laughs) penetrated with all the girls' faces next to it. And I'm the only one who can see this. And I'm like, yes, it is. So the teacher can see the, what they're watching while they're yeah. on it. Every okay. single she, she called them out. Every single no, because they they logged out. They 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 weren't wearing their headphones. They weren't. Oh. So it was like 16 people in the class. The eight boys all buttholes. The eight girls all sitting there. Okay, well, it's 11.5. I did the graph. <laughs> and then the teacher's supposed to be. Like watching these like people getting their fucking faces jizzed on. Yeah, it's um it is eleven point five. Thanks, Susie. 
Ashley, do you want to take up? Where's Brian? Ashley, do you want to do the next problem? I don't see Steve. Um, I think he had a bathroom emer emergency. Did she like cut little squares and tape them up over their windows? So that would have been to smart. That, that would have been smart. Yeah. <laughs> a little post-it notes that come out of her salary. She's like, I pay for them out of my pocket and I don't mind. Or like, God, yeah, like Brian, hilarious. like logs it back in with like ice cream all over his shirt. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. So I did the attendance for the right. You did. You saw my homework. OK, bye. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, men are monkeys really and we have a, like you know people disagree with me who are anarchists but i think public school is really good for boy like it, you need recess because we have that like monkey energy but i think it is good to like have us all in school with a bell it's just clear i like the clarity maybe that brainwashed me that's why i like the upright citizens brigade i was at i was an improv student level one level two level three and i felt so satisfied all i was so obsessed with getting better and better at improv comedy you know and and then i i transitioned those skills to stand up and that was a rough transition because I first started doing stand-up with no material and i was like uh oh i don't have like an ensemble of people helping me so then I got really into writing and it's funny you wrote this um, question for me. What are, what are my favorite moments on stage? Like the first killer joke I created and I started becoming obsessed with it because I would do it like I would start every show with this when I got good. I was probably like three years in to be to stand up and I had this joke where I was like, yeah, I, uh, my uh, my roommate's dog started eating all my cum tissues, you know. <laughs> I think I saved that thing's life. It was like dying on the couch. Now it's like running around the yard. Like, I think I got more <laughs> testosterone. I took a girl out on a date and then uh, the date went well. She sucked my dick. She's like, your cum tastes terrible. I'm like, I think I know Pomeranian who disagree with you. He's lived on it for like two months. But I started doing that joke every time I would do it, it would kill. And it's like it would it felt so good after coming out of like two years of not knowing how to do stand up. And then I feel like I figured out at least that much of it. And that's in my stand up special. Uh, uh, I think fart porn in beer halls is my stand up special. And uh, so I made three uh, conspiracies and dick jokes, fart porn in beer halls. And it's a medical device on, on YouTube today if you want to see that. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it took like fucking 18 years to put that, those three specials together, you know, of like banging out, like writing jokes, like, you know, what's a special considered? How long is a special? Yeah. I mean, they, they started as, uh, an hour HBO one hour, uh, but I made three thirties cause that's how much I had 90, okay. uh, ready to go. And so. I just think that three thirties was more digestible. I met this one Netflix executive and when I was in pre-production, when I was just like booking the tour, I drove from LA to new Orleans, to New York city. And I shot 50 shows and I was like booking it in the middle. And I met this Netflix person and I go, yeah, I think I'm going to put out like a 90 minute special. And she goes, don't, I'm like, what? She goes, our actual algorithm of stand-up specials, people watch the first 18 minutes and turn it off. Hmm. So, in, but I was like, I don't want to make, uh, you know, nine, 15 minutes. So I'll make, you know, does that statistic make you want to No, I agree with what you're yeah. uh, saying. And I think three thirties are amazing and palatable. Also guys linked below. So definitely does that statistic make you, uh, change your, or make you question your format a little bit? Does that make you think that maybe you want some killers up top rather than saving them till the end, you know? You, you mean like a closing bit versus yeah. an opening, you know, in screenwriting too, it's like, you got to wow them in the end. You got to wow them in the beginning. You got to get their attention in the beginning and then you got to wow them in the end. But I think, um, I also learned from improv that it's like, we would do scene A, B, C, and they would be totally separate. Then we would do scene A, B, C again, but it would have an L an element of A would be from C. And then ABC again, but that now the plots connect, you know, and I think that's a good structure for a standup act too, to like bring elements from different jokes as analogies, you know, politics, like the household, you know, 
11 in bald years, you know, you could be 11 in diabetes years as well. Yes, you know? there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I've got uh, a great diabetes joke that I've not been able to tell anybody yet, but I'm ready for it. Whenever anybody, somebody comes up to me and it just, I happen to be an earshot of someone complaining of their diabetes and saying, oh, my diabetes, it's killing me. I'm going to spring in and say, well, it's not called livabetes. <laughs> I can't that's wait. a good joke i Thank like you. that joke i've had it in my pocket for years i don't know what to do with it i know exactly what to do with it i'll spring it out and you know it's not going to be in an appropriate moment no one's complaining about their diabetes in a way that you should be joking about it you know but that's when it's going to come out and i'm mm -hmm. committed to that <laughs> that's why it's, it must be rough for people who are mortally obese there's no innuendo there yeah yeah there's not like a semi-mortally or maybe you can um but no it's like you know you're gonna fucking die if you don't change things you know and they're yeah. like twinkies dude and you know to each his own go for it um if you want to do that so dude tell me about clash Schwab jr um it's one of my favorite things ever and your page uh, again your um clash Schwab jr instagram page will be located down below i love that it links directly to uh, the world economic forum <laughs> and i just think that what you're doing is fucking hilarious so do you mind just um telling the audience a little bit about that dude okay well i'll i'll play it straight i've never publicly said i am klaus schwab oh, jr okay. because that's beard right. shaming that's kind of like beard phobic it's uh xenophobic i don't know all the phobics and all the icks um but what happened was so in in high school it's i don't know why but the year when i was 16 is like one of the most important things in my life like i it was first kiss first this first that i went to germany i was an exchange student i went to germany for a month so i speak okay german but I'd done it all through high school as well. And um, so uh, I have that in my back pocket. I have all these improv skills. I've done stand-up now for however many years. And uh, I'm frustrated. I can't get I can't get through. I can't get on shows. So at, at, there's this club here in the domain called the Romo Room that I, it was my home club. And when that club disappeared, I've been stagnating as a stand up in Austin because I don't have a home club anymore. That was my home club, the Romo Room. But I saw that um, Sam Tripoli was booked to play there. And I'd been listening to Sam Tripoli. I've been listening to Alex Jones. Everyone's talking about Klaus Schwab. So I'm like, and I'm bald. You know, for a I was only seven in bald years at this time. Um, but I, I uh, bought a spacesuit. I go, so Charlie Robinson told me he, about Klaus Schwab. I didn't know anything about him. He goes, well, he dresses like Emperor Palpatine and he's a banker. I'm like, shut the fuck up. That's not real. I watched all of his lectures in English and German. And I'm like, this guy is out of his fucking mind. And then I watch him in front of, you know, the president of Saudi Arabia or like all these world leader presidents. And they're not like, you're Dr. Evil. You sound <laughs> retarded. Shut the fuck up, which is what anyone who has a functioning cerebral cortex should say to him in two seconds. But they listen to him and they're like, yeah, uh, brain chips and all this stuff. And it's like, you're nuts. Like, your ideas are stupid, you Nazi shithead. Like, you tried some of these ideas before, you fucker. It was called World War II, you dipshit. <laughs> yeah, Go die. It was down in New Schwabenland, right? When he the founder? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And and the, <laughs> the, the guy before was the, before it was called the European Economic Forum, something like that. It started in 1945. The guy ran it till 1970. He was Hitler's banker. When he died, Klaus Schwab took over and rebranded as World Economic Forum. It was direct Nazi ties. And then he has the prepackages, the same idea. It's the same idea. Listen, I've been to Germany. Let me just little sidetrack and then I'll get get uh, answer your question. The oldest laws on the book of in Germany are the Reinsteigerbord, like w beer should be water, barley, hops, yeast. That's it by law. So all their food is pure organic. Okay, great. Good job, Germany. What else should be pure? What about the races? <laughs> you know, they're very like, well, we don't like these people. Okay, well, we can put them on the train and murder them, maybe. Okay. What's the next thing? Oh yeah, salmon. I like this. So like they're just um they 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 have like blinders on of like, oh no, it's better like this. And I've been to Germany and it's like clean, it's beautiful, the people's skin is beautiful because their food is so pure and you know, good on you. 
well, I don't like Turkish people. Maybe we should kill them all. Anyway, so when I hear Klaus Schwab talk, it's like he's literally a retarded person, emotionally retarded. His heart chakra is zero. There's like if you oh if you stitched open his chest, there'd be like three lumps of coal, and then his logic chakra would be like blinding everybody in the room. Um, which is not you know, wait, wait. You cannot, there's not an engineering solution to every social issue, you fucking retard, <laughs> you know? It's funny because my my dad is German-Irish and my mom's 100% Italian. My mom is like, lasagna. And my dad is like, I'm going to work, bye. You know what I mean? So they're just like, he doesn't have the lovey-dovey Italian. Anyway, so I got a spacesuit. I, I went to an army surplus store and I grabbed a bunch of badges and I stitched them on and I realized my first joke. So I walk right in the green room. Tripoli's there. He has no idea who I am. And he's like, who are you? I'm like, I'm Klaus Schwab. And he's like, no, you're too old. Like, how old are you? At the time, I was like, I'm 33. Uh, you know, he's like, no, no, you can't be Klaus. You're, you're his son. And then I just took a moment and I was like, Yes, I'm the trust fund brat for Davos. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, do that. Do you want like three minutes on the show? I was like, yes, I can make fools this. <laughs> so then I had like badges. And I was like, I got this badge for doing something very naughty. And I got this badge for killing everybody and covering it up. And I got this badge for doing something very naughty. I was basically, you know, Dr. Evil uh, from Austin Powers, you know, pretty easy to do this. And I'm like, why isn't anyone doing this? Like in my head, every sentence he says is this stupid. And then from watching Jim Norton and David Tell and all the and all these people, they have like no boundaries for how like sexually depraved they'll talk on camera and, and you know, in their specials. It's just like, you know, one of my teachers from the UCB, she uh called jackie clark she had this thing where she was i was watching her perform and she pretended to be a retarded girl on summer camp and then all the retarded boys went balls deep on the retard and it was just like it was no holds barred like it was like the funniest fucking thing i've ever seen so when klaus Schwab jr just like casually is like yes this is our policy anyway i want to make blood orgy with alex soros he's very <laughs> impressed by my foreskin so he docked with this and we made treaty from this anyway so come to Davos, which is January 14th, 2024 for you. Tickets are very reasonable. So they're only a quarter million dollars, but there will be blood. Anyway, um, <laughs> I will take you off all there. It's green energy for you, but you cannot say this. So it's just like you just take all this conspiracy knowledge and like one person who has an MK Ultra programmed to like not say shit in front of the public. It's you know what I mean? It's like the program he didn't take with him. It's like, fuck, yeah. we, we keep trying to erase his memory and shut him up, but it won't work. And it's Klaus Schwab. What are we going to do? It's his kid. Yeah, just a gear slipped. And he was like, oh, yes, I made crack with Hunter Biden yesterday. Yeah. And I, I, I put a lot of energy into the relationship. And uh, I made his snuff film. I raised some money for this. And then I said, hey, Hunter, let's make Klaus snuff video and he like was on the heroin with a cigarette in the bathtub and he fell asleep and i just realized i'm putting a lot of energy into this relationship and <laughs> not really getting much out of it and then he got 40 billion euros for the for the slush fund in the ukraine so i've reinstated our friendship so great for us <laughs> just like look at the news look at what the controllers are doing and just like it is clown world they're all retarded people they're very very stupid people once you know the playbook it's like kabuki theater and professional wrestling and like the first thing i did at ucb was something called the spin i was on the house team making fun of politics yeah. and fucking all these years later that's what i do with klaus you know schwab jr have you thought about expanding this to like Kim Jong Un Jr. and um, <laughs> Kim Jong Jr. Kim Jong Un Jr. Yeah, whatever. Um, and then other leaders like even uh, Putin, Putin Jr. Um, maybe he's just called Little Runny or something like that. Yeah, I would have to like go in the woodshed and learn Korean and go in the woodshed and learn yeah. Russian. I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, 
I don't know. I just uh, even in communication between them, like those videos you see where one talks to the other, and you could bring them in as I don't know, dressed as different characters. I'm sure you'd crush it. Is all I'm saying. A conversation between the juniors of the world leaders that are these evil fuck faces. I did make a sketch where like Hunter Biden and Klaus had a little sketch together. That's on ericollerbach.com. <laughs> okay. Where he Got had to like, like return a donkey like from from the donkey show. <laughs> from the night before. He needed the security deposit back for the donkey. <laughs> uh, all right, dude. Tell me about your um, podcast, Highway Diaries. Um, when did you start yeah. that? And why the fuck did you start a podcast? So I started that, I think, in 2013 or 2012. And it was this kind of thing where, you know, everyone started having a podcast in 2013. I wanted to be the, you know, one of the first ones out there with one. And what happened was I was living in L.A. I think I just got, you know, I was I think I finished working on Shark Tank. That was like a four month long or five month long gig doing season one. And then I was waiting. I had like a month long gap before I got on this other tv show so my sister called me and she was moving from san francisco to new york city so and she didn't want to drive across the country alone so she kind of put all of her stuff on a train and shipped it to new york and then we went on a road trip to intercept it and so she drove from la to uh from san francisco to la pick me up and then we went from la to New Orleans, to New York City, a trip I exactly repeated for my stand-up special later, serendipitously. That's crazy. Um, and so along the way, in each city, um, we record a podcast per city. And so the first, you know, I, I don't know how many, 10 episodes are me and my sister driving across the country. So that was why it was Highway Diary. And then when I got back to LA, it started just being me talking to other struggling open micers, trying to make sense of the show business and waxing poetic about comedy. Um, and then every now and then I would have a conspiracy person on. <clears throat> I had like Kevin Annett back in 2013 or 2014. And then I had this other guy called Alfred Levermont Weber who said Kevin Annett was a, a Jesuit agent. And so I was like, oh, and then Kevin and it's like, I'm suing the Pope. And then the Pope resigned. I was like, oh, this is crazy. <laughs> so I just uh, I talked to who I wanted to. And it was also, you know, a good way to get into um, the good graces of somebody who I admired. Like, you know, Tom Rhodes is like a big hero of mine. He's a, a comic in L.A. And so I was able to get him on my podcast twice now. And that's what a thrill for me. And uh, I'm a big fan of him. And he's a super, super nice, lovely person. Um, so it was a way to, you know, kind of expand my network. And then when I moved to New Orleans, um, you know, I did the same thing. But then I kind of ran into some social justice warrior people. And then I just talked about all the drama between, like, the different, you know, I just started hanging out with black people and they were oh, super nice to me. And then these liberal white people are like, Oh, you're racist. I'm like, you don't do black rooms. Stop talking, you know, <laughs> stop doing cocaine. You know, yeah. I could name four names right now, but I won't until I don't know. If, anyway. Um, so yeah. Anyway, that's how the podcast got started. It sounds fun as shit. You did have me on again, guys. I mentioned it earlier, but episode yeah. 394, I'm laughing the whole time at you. I don't see how you got anything out of me. You're just, Fucking hilarious, man. And I enjoy our time together. So uh, let me ask you about fucking aliens. Not exactly fucking them directly, but what do you think of aliens, man? What the hell's going on there? A lot in the media right now, people filming crazy shit. They're calling aliens in the skies. What do you think? Yeah. Um, I did this like Dr. Stephen Greer thing with my sister in the woods one time. We went C deep e in the woods. Yeah. yeah, we did CE5. And I don't know, mixed results. Um, I, I like the camping. It was kind of freezing cold though, but, um, I don't know what I, my feeling on the topic is, you know, I think, you know, it's like top secret, the CIA is like top secret, super top secret, ultra top secret. We give aliens blow jobs for technology. Like, I think that's the pyramid <laughs> and, um, or we let them kidnap people for adrenochrome. And then we're like, ooh, that stuff's tasty. And they're like, do you want to be in the club? You know what I mean? Like something like this. But I, I feel I feel like it's it's very strange that the first 
head of NASA was a Nazi, Werner von Braun, right? So I, I do think that the secret society of Nazis came in on Project Paperclip and they did not just give us uh, technology. I think they get they they held some kind of contract with some kind of being. I I believe this, like the dark being. If you want to call those the Draco reptilians, I don't know this. Is, and then there's like this other light being. Like I think I think of like heaven and hell or God and Satan. Like maybe it's like this dark force, Draco reptilian versus this light force, like Pleiadians. I've heard people say this. I'm not sure if God and Satan is an allegory for the you doing good as a person versus you doing evil. Uh, if if I feel evil today, is that because I'm lizard brained? Or if I'm doing good today, is that because I'm Pleiadian brain or God love brain? I don't know. So you have these like two forces, like good and evil, yin and yang, man and female, like up and down gravity versus strength to go up like there's always opposing forces good and evil so is it that um and i became obsessed with this book called dulcy that there's this uh there's this underground facility in dulcy new mexico that oh, yeah. um that where aliens are doing uh you know underground experiments i actually uh interviewed the editor um of this book on my podcast right before he died or no, I did his show. He had a Dulcie show. So I did his show. That's on my website. But anyway, um, and then like a week later, he's, he wanted me. He loved me so much. He wanted me on again, like two weeks and he died. Anyway, terrible. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I adapted this book into a screenplay. That's how much I love it. And I listen to all the Phil Schneider stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It seems like the government, like every, uh, that. I, I did a little real estate in New Jersey. I, we sold this house that was $190,000 in Irvington, which is a shithole. The most terrible school system, the most terrible everything. Let's say you had $190,000 in a briefcase. You don't own that house. It's the, the property tax were like $10,900. Can you your kids go to the school? Not without getting raped. It, well, will I be murdered in the next 12 calendar months? Most likely the police force corrupt to the gills. So like, where's that $10,900 going? Oh, you have to pay your water bill. You have to pay your electric bill. You have to put car insurance on the car, car uh, house insurance. There's just this predator class that's sucking up all this money. And you could say military industrial complex, but I think the controllers, I don't know. They're into some, we know about Jeffrey Epstein's Island and you know, the, the, the flight logs have been leaked on the internet of who visited Jeffrey Epstein's island, but I'm hearing they're going to be properly in court released. So like nobody listened to like the insider, you know, um, blue pill or red pill, red pilled, you know, conspiracy journalist community. But when they come out in a court document from Ghislaine Maxwell's personal black book of who visited, if they are not all immediately rounded up and put in a wood chipper, like, I, you know, I, I have a feeling that some secrets are going to come out. They might testify for their life. Like, OK, you don't kill me. Let, let's just let me tell you where the lizards live. Like, I don't know. Some, I feel like something's going to happen. Damn. I don't know. So, like, what are aliens? That's such a crazy thought, dude, to think that it's like, yeah, they were doing this crazy shit, but it was not necessarily that they were victims of it, but they were convinced to, I don't know, do this fucked up shit for this fucked up entity. And maybe it is a, like a parasitic thing. And maybe there's only like one ship and it's controlling, you know, enough of shit to where they're like, dude, there's this one colony. If you guys just nuke right here, we would all be absolutely free. Like, that would be fascinating yeah. if they just rolled on the lizard overlord kind of a thing. We think that they're against us, but what if they're like slaves to something really fucked up? And they make us read uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley in, in high school where it's all about cloning. Okay, that's like soft. That's like karmically relieving what they're already doing. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So. Do you think that they've cloned you? uh i would like them to improve the genes here and there i you know i would give them a list of things that they should have fixed <laughs> 
So, yeah, I've heard that, that that 23 and me or forever 21, what is that thing where the, you give them your DNA? Have you heard about this? Yeah. And then they can clone you, right? Yeah. So it's like you give them your DNA. There's all these whistleblowers out there, fringe people that are like every time you, you know, the people that get circumcised, like their T cells are in there so that they can use that to clone you. Mm -hmm. Imagine that you start getting a little uppity and, uh, you know, in some lab, I don't think I, I've never read into a top secret clearance, but I wonder if like the Area 51 people, if they like get uppity and start talking to the press, if they just kill and clone them and then like the next time their clone goes in bed with their wife and they're like, honey, remember that baseball game? What baseball game? I have to go to work. It's like a zombie Damn. version of them, but they look so similar. It's like something's wrong with Tony. He doesn't talk the same. I don't know. He doesn't remember our honeymoon, you know? Such a wild thought, dude, to think that maybe, you know, like they've just cloned you and maybe, yeah, one day you step out of line and a new Eric steps in and all of a sudden your comedy changes and all of a sudden you love the state and, you know, you, you feel like everything is awesome. And I'm like, dude, that's not the Eric I know. Uh, remember yeah, when you were on my show and you'd be like, what? <laughs> and then Klaus Schwab Jr. gets on stage. He's like, the World Economic Forum is great. No, yeah. We do everything perfect. Yeah, it's a sounding board, right? You just Great policies. They, they take it and they just wrap and apprehend all the work that you've been doing. That would be a personal hell, wouldn't it? I have been. Um, so I went to Germany for Oktoberfest and I, I was very paranoid that I would be sitting at a table in, in Munich in a tent, and then someone would sit down next to me and go, I heard you're making some funny funnies. Come with <laughs> me now. I'm like in this torture room, you know what I mean? I was just dunking me and like bad of acid. Would you stay in character? <laughs> yeah, I would try if I was a professional. <laughs> Dude, when the I'm in the spacesuit- to, to troll them as they're torturing you as, as Klaus Schwab Jr.? It's so funny because like I would like take photos with people like, you know, every time I perform with them, I take photos with people and then they're like, no, seriously, who are you? And I'm like, and so like, where are you from? I'm like, Bavaria. Why? <laughs> and they're like, no, who are you? I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I wouldn't do it. And you I, I would stay. when I did the tinfoil hat 500th episode, I showed up at six and I left at one. Not once did I break off. Damn. Not once. Do you and do then this someone, like in normal life? Do you just walk around and get coffee as Klaus Schwab Jr.? <laughs> I have done it. Or I'll do it like um, when I go to Aldi with my godson, I'll just be in character from pillar to post. <laughs> like I'll I'll like give him money and I go, hey, here's like 40 bucks. Like, you know, buy, buy groceries and like to teach him how to spend money and to like look at the prices. Yeah. And then like we go to the front to pay and I'm like, I told him if he does not mow lots, he does not eat. <laughs> And they look at me like I'm a monster. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I need, I will bring home the bacon. That is it. He must work. <laughs> like, so I'll just like go to class move. I fucking love it, man. Um, well, you know, uh, I'd love to send you one of these pooter tutors. If you give me your address, I would love to add one of these to the mix. Maybe you can add some um, lactardedness to Klaus Schwab Jr. and um, have some fun <laughs> with it, you know? <laughs> Eric, man, uh, we're going to cut it here in just a little bit, dude. But on the final word here, I'd like to give you, I just want to hear something that you're hopeful for, man. What motivates you? What keeps you moving forward? You know, it's a heavy ass fucking place, man. We talked about a lot of crazy shit today and um, want to remind the audience all the ways to find him located down in the show notes as well as everything else that we talked about. Honored to call you brother, dude, so, seriously. So what's, you know, what keeps you moving forward, Bubba? Thanks. Thanks, Brandon Thomas. Now, I didn't fall for all the Q stuff, but I, I did understand that, by the way, there's this lady called Jesse Shebazar that said that the Q movement is a Masonic group called the group of Quexiquazal. And that is who the, there's like a good element within the Masons that's trying to expose them. So that's why they write cryptically. That's why they do this and that. But I wonder if there is a frustrated group within the club that wants to put the ruling elite in a wood chipper. So the only thing that makes me happy and the only thing that makes me hopeful is seriously this flight log is about to come out in court not just the flight log but like the client list so if the client list of jeffrey epstein's um pedo island comes out in the mainstream news proper i think that it's going to be a wood chipper on the white house lawn and we throw them all in i don't think there's going to be a lot of bullshit the next day so i just see this like this this almost like a kidney stone that can that has the potential to be passed in the body politic where we remove this parasite class 
And then I really wonder what would ha- what would the world be like if if like we were given our freedom back, like our constitutional freedom, and we got rid of the USA Corporation and we went back to a constitutional republic and uh, by the people for the people. This, this is there's like windows of opportunity. And I think that's a big window of opportunity if uh, Barack Obama, Big Mike and Bill and Hillary Clinton are on that list as actual clients, what would happen then? Um, and uh, Bill Gates and Fauci, and I hear Woody Allen and Tom Hanks, and it's like, rant, wood chipper, wood chipper, wood chipper, you know? And um, at the same time, you know, speaking of Tom Hanks, you know, all these actors that get their master in acting, and then it's like Tom Hanks is. Been, they're they're talking in Hollywood about having Tom Hanks be the like a perpetual movie star where the, they'll just AI him into all movies. So there's no need for actors anymore. That is a level of nepotism that is the end of the rainbow of nepotism. They're telling us we're useless eaters. They're telling us they don't need us anymore, that humanity is over. And now it's time for the robots and the lizards to take over. You know, the lizards have been living underground for too long. And they want some sunshine. They want to be able to walk in the grocery store and just buy, you know, eat babies, you know, <laughs> openly at In-N-Out, just screaming babies, just just a conveyor belt of babies that they can just pluck with their big old fingernails and eat, you know, they, but they have to go underground because that's not politically correct these days to do, you know, so um, either humanity's over or we, this log, this flight, this client list comes out and it ha- and it's like ha- you know 70% of the world economic forum is eliminated by good patriots so that's what makes me hopeful anything short of that you know i might jump off a bridge i don't know brent thomas but there's a glimmer of hope there's a sliver of hope i don't know <laughs> i want to stay in there i want to see this i want to see if this changes you know This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.